Hello, I'm Udwa Kamimo, and this is Fearless. Professor Miriam Hamadi Were is one of Kenya's most eminent public health specialists. Trained as a teacher and then as a medical doctor, her life began in Western Kenya. With a childhood she describes in her forthcoming memoir as both joyful and playful. Mama Miriam, thank you for joining me on Fearless. You're my first guest. And it's an honor to have you. A great pleasure. Um, You are both a national and an international treasure because of all the work you've done on public health, particularly community-based health care. In fact, you currently sit on the Lancet uh, COVID-19 Commission because, of course, we're speaking one year into the global coronavirus pandemic. And we'll get to that as we go along. Yes. But first, I'd like you to help us understand the seeds of the fearlessness you embody. Where, where does that come from? Well, I, I grew up in a family that uh, was a Christian family. And one of the training that we received as children was that you must always respect truth and you must always be honest. My parents were friends, Quakers, and, and they raised us to say, well, you know, you must be truthful because people are hearing you, but God is also hearing you. And so, in a way, I never thought about fear. It just comes that if I'm truthful, then you can't be afraid in a way that so long as you're seeking the truth. And most of my life, I have stuck to the truth. Most of my life. Uh, most of your life? Yes. There are times in your life when you didn't tell the truth? Well, you know, like when you drink milk as a child. And <laughs> I remember I drank milk when I was a child. And my mother said, did you drink? I drank milk, which was supposed to be for tea, but I drank it. She says, have you drunk milk? I said, no, but it was on my mouth. She says, but it's on your mouth. Then I realized that when you do not, tell the truth, it sometimes shows. Mm. And so I've just, I've just, I I just lived to be truthful. Mm. So for a lot of us in Kenya and internationally, because you've got quite a, uh, 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 an impressive international profile, you embody fearlessness, boldness, courage. You've talked about your family and Christianity, your Quaker faith. Yes. And you're gracious enough to share with me the draft of your memoir, And it seems to me as if that goes all the way back to your father's conversion to Christianity. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, my father was a small boy, had a cattle and and sheep in the early 1900s. When she saw some two white people, a man and his wife, and an African man, come to the area. And he was puzzled because who are these pale, the pale people they called them. And uh, it turned out that it was missionaries. So the, the man who was with them, the African man from our area who was with them, called some elders, some male elders, who came with their stools and they discussed issues of Christianity. They told people about a God who was loving, a God who had sent his son to redeem the world. Now, my father was really puzzled because he, he took part in the traditional worship. And the traditional worship, every morning, they sacrificed a cock to peace, for peace, so that God would give them peace. So it had seemed to my father that... The to God, appease the ancestral spirits. 
Yes, to, to, to God and to the ancestral spirit. And my father believed that God had to be appeased all the time. So my father got the impression that God was a very angry God, always to be appeased. And then these people come and talk about a God who loves you and gives you his son. So these people spoke in different places. And my father, because he was a child, he couldn't sit with the elders. So he used to climb the tree and hide behind a tree, the, the, lamb, the, 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 the branches, and hear what they are saying. And when they move to the next stage, he goes there. So by the time he had heard this message 10 times, and they said they were going back to where they lived, he came forward and said, I want to hear more about this. And that's how he became a Christian, on the message that God was a loving God, and that he had sent his son Jesus to redeem him to himself, to reconcile people to God. And he was just, all his life, he died in his 90s, in 1983, and all his life, he was fascinated by the love of God. Mm -hmm. So we experienced that all our lives. But your father also destroyed the family altar. But yes, he did. He did because, you know, once he became a Christian, and, uh, but he still took part in the traditional worship and uh, where they sacrificed the cock. But the thing is that he used to see a lot of fear when people are around, around the, the altar, sacrificing the cock, pleading to God to make them, to not to destroy them, to give them peace, to protect them, pleading to God always with fear. So he just decided that this altar and these sacrifices were harmful to the family. And as a young boy, one night he woke up, and dismantled the family altar and, and threw it in the river. Now, in the morning, when the family woke up, they were really shocked because they believed that an enemy had come to dismantle it, and they were crying. So he had to come forward and said, no, it was not someone else. It was me who destroyed it. Of course, they beat him up, and, and they thought he, they had killed him. But he, he survived and uh, continued so that... Uh, he believed strongly, in that, but he told us later <coughs> on that he should have talked to them rather than destroy the altar. Mm -hmm. But as a boy, he, he didn't know how what to do, but that's what he did. Okay. So, so, you know, there's this consciousness of fear that comes from your dad and the fact that fear is not good. Um, now, you say that, you know, early in your childhood, it's been impressed upon you by your parents that you must also, that you must always tell the truth um, and walk in integrity. But you then go to primary school, um, and there's bullying from older, bigger children, but also from your teachers. Uh, tell us about that, um, and, and what that, that does in, in terms of your mindset and you know, your understanding of fear and being afraid. Well, you know, I just, uh, when, when, my, when the other children bullied me, I, it was sort of normal. But when the teachers bullied me, it was really abnormal. I felt it was uh, not fair. But I felt that, what could I do except believe God to rescue me? And, uh, I, and I was rescued by, actually by the head girl. Dorcas Luceno. Dorcas. I, I grew up next to another tribe, the Nandi tribe. But that's where my home is. And we always knew that they were our enemies because they stole the cattle. But here I am in high school, in, in, in primary school, in a boarding primary school. 
And the, teacher, the way the teacher tortured me was to withhold food from me. Uh, I have done nothing, but she, because she was interested in marrying my brother, and my brother married someone else, and I was 12 or 13, I didn't know any of this stuff. So, but she would withhold wood, she would be, tell me to stand up when people are eating. So anyway, one day when she had done that, Drokas came and took me from class at night from the prep, and she took me and gave me food. And I was so amazed, here was a girl from an enemy tribe, being very nice to me, I was very happy, but I saw it as God rescuing me. And then she raised it with the, with the staff. She called, she was a very brave high, uh, head, girl. head girl. She raised it, she called a meeting of the staff and said, is this a new way of punishing children? And the teacher said, we never knew that this was happening. We didn't know. So that was the end of it. So I saw that God had rescued me through drugs. And I admired her all my life. Unfortunately, she has passed on, but... Before she did, we had she went to university and we had been friends and mm. and she just was such a hero. To but me. your father also intervened in that situation, didn't he? Pardon? Your father also intervened in that situation. Well, yes, my father did because uh, uh, well, later actually, on, actually, both your parents because your mother noticed something was wrong with you. Yes, because you were sent home early. Yes, for I no was sent reason. home early one time. Now, after after Gladys had rescued me from Drokas had rescued me from this food business, uh, one of the teachers and the headmistress decided to send me home early on, on suspension, and I asked them what because the practice was that when you are going to be suspended, you go to the staff room, they tell you the problem, and I hadn't done they hadn't done this, and I was a good student, and I so I wondered why they were taking me home. And uh, when I, they, my dad mistress told me, it is in the letter. So when my father got the letter, it was in English. So he took it to someone to read it for him. And he said, this letter is one sentence. Miriam made noise in the class. So they didn't know what to do. So my mother simply said, ah, if a child makes noise in the class, the teacher handles it. So she just dismissed it. And... I was very happy that she was on my side because our parents normally took the teacher's side. So they were on my side and uh, as the time came for me to go back, I wondered, will the school take me back? So I, or I asked my mother, what if they don't take me back? She said, don't worry, if they don't take you back, we'll take you to another school nearby. All the schools want you. The, your father has shared your report with the teachers and they like the work, so they will take you. So I said, oh God, thank God. And the headmistress had actually required that I go with my brother, although the letter said my father texted me. So when I told my father, when, when the time came, my father said, I'm taking you myself. I said, but the headmistress, he says, no, I'm, I am taking you. My, father, my, my son is busy with his life, so I'm taking you. So he did. When we reached the school, Kaimos Girls Boarding School, the headmistress saw me with my father and simply sent somebody to say, let the old man go home and tell Miriam to go to the dormitory. My father said, no, I have to talk to the headmistress. And he stood his ground until the headmistress came. And the headmistress was, she was an American woman, white American woman. She was a bit irritated. What is it you want me to tell you? She says, I want to know why my daughter was sent away. It was noise, but my father said, noise? 
What kind of noise? When children make noise, they, they are dealt with in the school. Why did you send her away? So eventually, in the final analysis, my father said, I want you to give me a letter of transfer. I want to take my daughter to another school. And then she goes to pieces. No, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. He says, why can't I do that? He says, because she's one of our best students. You can't take her away. Now that the headmistress of all things starts to appeal to me. Miriam, please don't let him take her away. Don't let him take me away. So it seemed like it had really nothing to do with me. There were issues that they were dealing with, but I was becoming a victim. But my father took a firm step. And my, the headmistress told my father, she will never be tortured again. And that was the end of it. And I was settled. I was in Senate 7. I was settled. I did my cap well and, and did very well and went to high school. So... It, it helped a lot that my parents understood the situation. They just didn't beat me up or pick me or pick on me, but they said it didn't make sense. And actually, I didn't even make noise in class. I was very interested in knowledge. And I paid a lot of attention to the teachers. So someone was picking out something, I think because of my brother not having married somebody and married someone else. So I was just being asked to pay for it. Right. You then excel. You've always been a good student. Um, you excel at your you know, studies. Good fortune means that you become one of the uh, students, the young, gifted Kenyan students who selected um, for further studies uh, in the U.S. through the Mboya uh, and Kennedy airlifts. You go on to have an illustrious career, first as a teacher and then as a medical doctor, then as a university professor, then as an international public health specialist. It sounds like a charmed life. And yet, because you and I interact in other spaces, I know that there have been some fearsome moments, some you know, moments where you've doubted yourself, things have not quite worked out as they should have. Can, can you share with us your first experience of that? Well, you know, I, I grew up, as I said, a Christian and believing that Human beings are made in the image of God. So all human beings are equal. And the white people that I interacted with, who, who came to the village to tell us about Jesus Christ, showed us that we were all equal before God. But then as I grew up, I came to learn that in the colonial system in Kenya, they had classification, class uh, schools number A, schools B, and schools C. So I asked them, what is, school, what, what is the difference? I was told that A schools were for the white people, B schools were for the Indians, Asians, and C schools for the Africans. And the A schools had very good things. B schools had many good things, but C schools had nothing. For instance, I learned how to write in the dust because the, the C schools, they didn't have provisions of anything. So we learned how to write in the dust. And then I learned that, oh, in the... B schools, they learn, they write on slates. And, and, and in the S schools, they learn to write on paper. So I became puzzled about this classification of things when God was a, had made everybody equal. So that became a concern for me. And then I used to imagine that Africans are lying on the floor and the Asians are on top of the Africans and the Mzungus are on top of the Asians. So I used to feel breathless in my dreams, Africans being sat on. And then uh, it turned out that uh, actually, 
this was just the colonial system. But then in my own life, I realized that people, although God has made us equal, people are different, with different abilities, even in the classroom. So I began to deal with the issue that although we are equal, we are differently gifted. And we are required to be helpful to one another. The differences are supposed to use to help one another, not to destroy one another. So I think the fact that people could actually give you a C, classify you as C and dismiss you really shook me as a child. And in professional life, I also came to realize that Africa was still the dark continent, the dismissed continent. And, uh, but as a professional, I was invited to top committees, mm. and one of them was the uh, WHO Medical Research mm. Committee, which was a global committee that determined the priorities in researching globally. And I was the first African on that committee, the first Afri not the first African, the first woman. There was no woman, no, no white woman or anything. And the other factor was that I was barely 40 when I joined. Because you're 81 now. Eh? You're 81 now. You've just turned 81. I'm 81 now. Mm -hmm. But I was barely 40 then. And everybody in the committee was in their 70s. So I had noticed that when people start talking, they always pulled down their glasses uh, and, and talked under their nose. And since they were all old men, and we, were, we have been taught to respect elderly people, and in addition, I was a woman, the only woman in the group, I sort of kept quiet most of the time. But then there came up a time when issues of research priorities was discussed. And unknown to me, the elders had decided to ask one of them to present the research priorities. And I sat there, and he said, the research priority, that was in 1983, the research priority was nursing homes, the type of nursing homes, the financing of nursing homes, and this was where WHO was to spend his for money. For older people. For older people, nursing homes for older people. And this is where WHO was to spend his money. I listened for a while, I said, but this is not truthful eh, for Africa. For Africa, the truth is different. Okay, so actually, you've written about it, Yes. Um, I'd like to ask you to to write uh, to, to read um, your response, what you've written in, in your draft. Okay. After research, after the research elders had given much praise to the choice of nursing homes as the priority, I dared to put up my hand, and further dared to state that presentation had not touched on research priorities in Africa. Practically all the eyeglasses dropped down to the noses as committee members made an effort to turn to look at me. Asked to explain what I meant, my voice almost disappeared. However, summoning up courage, I mentioned that in Africa, most of our elderly people still living with families of their children. So there, were no, there was no need for nursing homes. Then I mentioned examples of priority research problems in Africa that needed WHO support, such as reproductive health, 
prevention and management of diarrhea, malaria, and the like. No sooner had I stopped talking than the Minister of Health from a Middle East country put up his hand to state that nursing homes were also not a priority research area in his region. He proceeded to name what were research priorities in the Middle East, which seemed quite close to those of in Africa. In the long discussion that followed, the final communique listed major areas of global concern that needed research and nursing homes were not among them. If looks could kill, looks could have killed me and the minister on that day. Okay. But that is what resulted in having the Diarrheal Diseases Control Program in WHO. That was a global program that saved a lot of children in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, and other reproductive health programs. Mm. And that was as a result of your courage, your boldness in uh, speaking up. Um, but I'll take you back early uh, on in your career to the University of Nairobi. Um, you go back and study to be a medical doctor, having already trained as a teacher and having taught uh, the sciences in high school. You come in to the University of Nairobi, you're um, a mature student, uh, you excel again, and they ask you to start what then becomes the School of Public Health. But in between those experiences, you then become acquainted with one of Kenya's you know, um, challenges, corruption. Tell us about that. Well, when I was in the, teaching in the Faculty of Medicine, I, I became the director of a pilot project. Actually, it was my personal project in the sense that it was my research area for the Doctor of Public Health. Because after finishing as a medical doctor, I specialized in community health. I, then I did a master's in public health and doctor in public health. And my research area was people's participation in their own health care. How do we empower people to look after themselves? One of the reasons this uh, challenged me is because there were very few health workers and people were just, they had to look after themselves. So I, when, I went, when the Ministry of Health saw my research proposal, they liked it. And they said, not only is it going to be your research proposal, it is going to be the national pilot project on community-based health care. I was very happy. And an international organization came forward to finance it, UNICEF, actually. And um, so at the end of the first year, and, and because it had become the national pilot project of community health, I decided as the director that we shall use the Ministry of Health allowances, not the university allowances. The university allowances at that time were a little higher than the Ministry of Health allowances. So even for myself, I decided we use Ministry of Health allowances to, when we travel out and so on. And so at the end of the year, there were some savings. And uh, one of the big bosses in the university called me when he noticed, he noticed that the year was ending and he says, you are a very good girl. I said, okay. He says, um, you have saved us some money. And uh, you have saved yourself some money. And uh, I, have, I, have, I have taken our, the initiative to prepare a list of what that money has been spent for. I said, I don't understand. The money has not been spent. 
Then he says, no, 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 there is a list here that I have already developed with some of your, your colleagues. And uh, this is the money that, so that no, we should not send back money to the UN. This money is now yours and mine. I said, but sir, he said, okay, if you don't want to give me half, you can give me a quarter, but this is our money. I have already signed the list that I have prepared, we received. All you need to do is to sign it. And then, uh, then we are all good. We, we need a little money in our pockets. I said, no, I haven't received that money. I haven't received this thing, so I can't sign. And secondly, I said, uh, also, one of the reasons I was using the Ministry of Health allowances was so that the cost can be kept low, so that the Ministry of Health can adopt this program. If we spend all the money and it is high, the ministry may not be able to afford the program. Then we shall be killing our people. So he's asked, are you, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to, to sign. I said, no, I'm not going to sign. And the guy stood up and went to the door and stood on the door and said, you are not getting out of this house until you sign. I said, my God, is he going to strangle me? Does he have a pistol? So I was just sitting there saying, God, help me, but I will not sign. Then I decided, let me look at the list, because the list was on another table. I said, let me look at the list, because I hadn't seen the list. And as I moved to the table to sign, to look at the list, he ran from the door. Oh, you are a good girl now. You're going to sign. And as he ran to the table, I ran to the door and got out. So, as he saw me open the door, he began to abuse me. And he, he was, his office was on the third floor. And he abused me as I went down. He told me, I'll be finished. He will finish me. I'll never make it in the university. He will be, he'll make me I'm thrown out, da, 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 da. But for me, I would have deceived my country and my people for us, the two of us, to eat that money meant for Kenya and for the poor people of Kenya. So I, I didn't even debate it. I just told him I cannot sign it. So it has been kind of my story, my life story. Was there any cost to that? Did he actually retaliate against you? Well, you know, I think that God has protected him because he tried, actually, to make some allegations which were investigated and nullified. So integrity pays because when investigations, when truthful investigations are done, the people find that you didn't do anything wrong. And I'm, I, 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 I stayed in the university for another 10 years. I got promoted. I became the head of the department. At that time, I was not the head of the department and so on, until I was now recruited by the United Nations. And uh, so I think that my entire life was looked through, but they didn't find things to... And so I just thanked God that I had really tried to be faithful to my work mm. and to my country. Yeah, so in spite of his efforts, you, as you say, are promoted. You become the first African and woman to head a department in the faculty yes. of medicine. And then the, the work that you um, uh, initiate leads to a school of public health. Yeah. But as you say, you, you're then recruited by the United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF. 
to go and work in Ethiopia. You go along with your husband who's recruited to work um, uh, for UNICEF as well. Uh, tell us about the experience because um, you go to Ethiopia during the Derg years, um, um, during the socialist years, um, and find yourself caught up in the conflict between the Derg and the uh, EPRDF, uh, um, the, the, which eventually becomes um, the ruling party in Ethiopia. What was that like? Well, uh, I went to Ethiopia during the Great Famine, the 1983-1985 famine of Ethiopia. It was really desperate. Uh, when I was recruited to go, I was told that since you have been working in, in the Kenyan villages and you know how to approach villages and how to improve people's health and you have been organizing programs, come and do it in Ethiopia. At first I was scared. I, I don't know Ethiopia, um, so, but out of the fact that I'm now, it's Africa, is part of our human family, I agreed to go. And of course, I, uh, in those days, Ethiopia and Kenya were not on very good terms because we were, called, we were known as the capitalists and they, were Marx, and they were Marxists. And so I had to be very careful with everything I said so that I'm not just dismissed as a, a capitalist. But uh, after a while, they realized that I was really serious about the children of Ethiopia, and, one, and especially the ministers, the two ministers, of, the minister and the deputy minister were very keen on, 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 on helping us to work with the children. So I proposed with, my, with the letter, with the, under the leadership of the agency head, I propose that we develop a program called Accelerated Child Health Development, which included looking after mothers and children. And, and the boss of the UN had told me, give us a good program, how it is, uh, give us clear financial guidelines and how it is going to be used, and I, I will undertake to find the money because I, don't, I want to put a stop to the Ethiopian children dying. The dying was very dramatic. It was happening on the streets. My children, my young children whom I went with, they saw children dying under the trees, children dead under the trees, starving, from from, from, starving to death from the famine. It was a serious problem. So we worked together, and I also involved the WHO and the UNFPA so that we work. These are UN agencies the for UN agencies, population So that we support. work together as a unit, and that was appreciated by them. And they took part in the program because there was no point on being a hero. It was a question of the group meeting the challenge of starving children and mothers and families. So we developed what we called SCAGD, Accelerated Child Health Development, and it was very well financed. So when the first lot of money came in, in millions of dollars, came to the, to the UN office, one of the military procurement officers, I was told, I was in another meeting and I was told uh, the military procurement officer is in the office waiting for you. So I say, oh, military. So I get in and he says, well, nice to see you. And thank you for bringing so much money to Ethiopia. Many millions of dollars. I said, thank you, sir. Ah, then the discussion went on very much like the one that had gone on in the, in the Nairobi. Now that you brought so much money, money, we also need some money. We are also in need of money. So 
I have organized a list here, which you are supposed to have received in your office. I want you to sign it so that UNICEF can give us that money. It's just a hundred thousand dollars. It is, the UN will not miss a hundred thousand dollars. So I said, but sir, once the money has come to Ethiopia, it is no longer UN money. It is Ethiopia money for the children who are starving and dying on the streets. So it is no longer UN money. So oh, I cannot sign this money. No, but it is just, if you sign it, you, you and I can just share. You can share, you can take most of it. Then I can take a little bit for me and my colleagues. I don't even know, sir, I cannot do that. And I and and he, and he says, but this is a this 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 this, this the, the list you have prepared is like the things that you have been ordering from your office, because I worked with your staff. I said that's another problem. If you work with my staff to 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 give you a false list, how do I manage the staff? Are you? And then he becomes really rough, like a military guy. Are you going to sign or not? I say, sir, I cannot sign. To to make a long story short, he threatened me. He said that in this country, people just die and people disappear. Nobody asks questions. Don't be so sure of yourself just because you're a Kenyan. Don't be so sure of yourself. I said, sir, I cannot steal the money of Ethiopian children. So he left. This time it was him who left my office shouting obscenities. And uh, he said, you will be out of this place in no time, I'm going to make sure that you get out and go back to your country. And da 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 da. I had hardly been there for a year, so I just said, "Well, but I cannot steal the children's money. This is money. It's not the UN money. Once it is here, it is our money to protect these children and the mothers and the communities." So he left. After that, whenever I had a gunshot. I would look back and say, is it for me? And say, dear Lord, I'm in your hands. I'm happy to say that I never had another incident in Ethiopia after that. I stayed, actually, I stayed in Ethiopia for 15 years after that. For 14 years, in, 15 years in total. And uh, even while I was there, I became a regional director for East Central and Anglophone West Africa, so that we covered Eastern Africa, we covered Central Africa. You set up the office, the directorate for yes, UNFPA. I, I set up the office of the UNFPA, and we also covered Ghana, Gambia, the Gambia, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, the, the, the Western African countries, Anglophone. And um, God has been gracious. He, mm. he, 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 he honored our work. You were so well regarded, actually, that uh, um, you were Kenya and Africa's choice for uh, what secretary? No, uh, director general of the UN uh, FPA. Yes, yes. While I was in Ethiopia, uh, because I was, I was there from 1985 to 19 to 2000, when I got to 60 and retired, uh, the position of the UNFP executive director executive was becoming director. open. And I had been talking with ambassadors. At first, when I was talking with them, they were not so happy with me because I was talking about management of families and uh, family, planning. family planning. And 
and they felt I was anti-population. But Sexual we discussed education. them and we agreed that population management was part of development. You can't have 10 children when you can't feed them. So, so we came to an agreement. What surprised me was that they, the ambassadors, then proposed to their ministers, foreign ministers, that I should become the next UNFPA executive director. And I was so surprised because I didn't even know this because they actually gave this information to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Kenya. And when he came to Ethiopia, he said he wanted to see me and told me, well, we want to present you as a candidate. I said, oh. I said, but, 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 and I was a bit afraid. He said, oh, there's no but. I have consulted my country, my, my fellow ministers, we are going to meet this afternoon. We are putting up your name and, and so on. So they put it to the, my name to the ministers of foreign affairs. Then they put up my name for the, to the heads of state when they came for the ministry meeting that comes up at the head of state. And at the head of state meeting, I was called forward and told I was the sole African candidate. Well, that was the highest point in my life. The whole of Africa behind this little girl from the village, I was very happy. At that time, uh, the Secretary General of the UN was Kofi Annan. And uh, some people said, because it is Kofi Annan, he's an African, he will just appoint you, because it's not by election, it is by appointment. He will elect you, he will he'll appoint you the, the UN Secretary General, the UN, the UN, UNFP Executive Director. And others said, no, he, this is unfortunate because he cannot appoint another African. They will say now, He's giving all the positions to Africans. He himself is an African and so on and so on. So as it turned out, uh, in 2000, the candidate that was chosen for that position was, the, was from the Middle East. And, uh, and because of this balancing, so I didn't get the position of UNFP executive director. But it was such a great honor to stand in that hall in Addis Ababa and have all these heads of state standing up from all over Africa clapping for me as the one that was going to represent African interests at the UN. So I felt that, I felt that, well, God has been gracious to me. Mm. Your fearlessness is paying off. Um, mm. So you retire, and in retiring, you know, you start racking up these international awards. Um, to name a few, the Hideo Noguchi Africa Prize. You got two awards from, from Japan, actually. Yes. One last year, if yes. um, I'm not mistaken, um, from the Commonwealth, the Queen Elizabeth II Gold Medal for Public Health, yeah. Women Leading Change by the Global um, YWCA, the Young Women Christian Association. You have honorary degrees from all over the world. Kenya has honored you twice over um, for your contributions to public health. Um, and so you're appointed to several boards, which is how I know you, because we sit on a um, board together. To what, extent, uh, to what extent is your conviction about doing the right thing still being challenged in retirement, in sitting on boards? Well, um, I, I actually, uh, because when I retired in 2000 and came to Kenya, I was invited to a number of boards. And in 2003, President Kibaki appointed me the chairman of the National AIDS Control Council. And um, 
I was a little bit afraid because just before that appointment, there had been a lot of newspaper coverage on the corruption of the National AIDS Control Council. So I was almost, I almost told them, no, I can't come. I can't accept, but who am I to say no to a president? So, so I went and started the work, and what surprised me was that uh, one of the officials who were there asked me, do you have any debts out of the blue? I said, um, well, we just have, I just have, we just, my husband and I have just one debt. What is that? I said, a mortgage. We are living in a house that we are buying, so we have a mortgage. He said, oh. I said, what, what does that? I said, well, we have paid the, the deposit, but we are paying a monthly stipend, a monthly payment for the, for, the, for the mortgage. And then he says, then the officer says, oh, NAC can pay you, can, can pay up the mortgage for you. I say, National AIDS Control Council can pay the mortgage up for me? Yeah, we have a lot of money in the bank. We can pay up. Just give you a check in your name, you take it to the bank, and then you pay us back slowly. I say, but I said, okay, since this is not an option in our agreement with the bank, let me find out from the bank how this would, how this would work. I went home, I told my husband, and we started laughing because we said, ah, this is just a trick. This is a trick to get you into their camp. And secondly, at that time in 2003, there were no drugs for people having living with HIV AIDS. Children were dying, people were dying. How do I get millions of shillings in my name from the National AIDS Control Council? So there's no question I could have accepted that. But I didn't say that. So I went home and we laughed about it. And I came back to Naga. I said, my husband and I have decided that the arrangement we have made with the bank is satisfactory. So we said, but why? But I said, there is no but. Then after this, there were also offers that I could go and have holidays outside at the expense of NAC, and I could go to Europe. But I said, but what can I learn in Europe about AIDS? They don't know, they don't have a challenge with AIDS. We have a challenge. So anyway, I think that there are always opportunities for corruption. But what we must always know, and this is what has also helped me in addition to my faith, the fact that you always had somebody and you always had the most disadvantaged. And why do you want to go down your grave with a name that you had the disadvantage? You didn't help them. Our duty, when we get professional, when we get an opportunity, our duty is to help bring other people up so that nobody is still at the bottom. So this business of doing it so that we can get a little more, because you know, the problem is that you, one, one is always short of money. You are, there's always something you could use. Even now, I can. I, I, there are things I could use. There are also I would also need of money, in terms of people that need the money that know you, and they would. You could help them if you got some of this little money, but at what cost? So I have come to understand that corruption always creates victims, and it always disadvantages the most disadvantaged. And though it is very sad that Kenya is 
known and listed by the Transparency International as one of the most corrupt countries. Why don't we know that we can actually help bring Kenya out of that kind of disgrace and help our people to stand on their... I mean, I don't have a home with a swimming pool, but I'm okay. Maybe if I had taken all those corrupt money, I would have had a, a more fancy home. But it is okay. So I think that feeling for one another is very important. And I think that this country is said to be 80% Christian, and I always smile, 80% Christian, where is it showing that we are 80% Christian, that we are reaching out to each other, that we are helping to lift up those who are down? So I think that we can have strategies that help us to do this. And uh, what I have learned, of course, is that because even now at the age of eight, one, I have been, I'm still a member of both. I have learned that in the long run, integrity pays because I am respected and I'm always invited to bodies, national and international. Let me ask you this. You know, because you, you talk about uh, in your forthcoming memoir, you repeat um, several times that you believe that there is good in everyone. You, you say in your forthcoming memoir that you believe that there is good in everyone and that, and you've just um, talked about it now, that if we felt for everyone, then we wouldn't approach some of the situations and challenges and that life throws our way with such a fearfulness. Um, but if you think about those situations and the people who wanted to do, who wanted you to do wrong and who then meant evil for you, how would you apply that to them? Well, you know, I think that it is, it is the search for shortcuts. I really believe that, you know, when something good happens, most people are happy about it. So I think there is good in everyone. And I think that goodness is part of be becoming human. But we become worried about the shortcomings that we have. Uh, for instance, uh, when I was going to school, there were times I didn't have school fees. And maybe those things cannot make my parents go, become crooked. But you know, I think that if you believe that God will see you through, and you are prepared to work hard for it. God does see you through. And, uh, and, and, and God does see you through by other people. You know, like for instance, I just, some of the help I have received, it just came out of nowhere. So I think that people must believe that there is goodness in them. And that goodness comes, is, is a, a, a comes beneficial to you when you are being good to other people. So being good to other people is also an investment for your own well-being. So if we believe that there is good in us and we believe that we can be good to other people, then that becomes an investment in us because we are investing in other people. Mm. But, but there is good in everyone. Mm. Just, we just, it just needs to be brought out. That's refreshing to hear. So you talk about um, your good name going forward and even in retirement, you're still asked to do pieces of work. Uh, last year, you were appointed to the Lancet's COVID-19 Commission. 
And your work involves four main themes, recommendations on how best to suppress the, pand uh, the epidemic, um, addressing the humanitarian crises arising from the pandemic, addressing the financial and economic crises resulting from the pandemic, and fourth, rebuilding an inclusive, fair, and sustainable world. Reflecting on some of the more difficult experiences you've had, where people have tried to induce you to corruption or, you know, threatened you because you've refused to, to be corrupt or do the wrong thing, how would you apply those lessons um, from those difficult experiences to rebuilding a fair, inclusive, and sustainable world? Well, I think that we just need to, first of all, to see that everybody has a right to a good life. I think that that is the starting point. Everybody has a right to a good life. Now, if we all believe that, then our approach will be, how can we help the most disadvantaged? We begin with the most disadvantaged. How can we help the most disadvantaged? How can we bring them up? And, and then make decisions at political levels that are reflecting the fact that we want to help the most disadvantaged. Manage our own finances in terms of as leaders in, in the responsibilities that we have. If you are a cabinet secretary or you are a director or something, how are you managing those resources to help the most disadvantaged? You know, when I go to the village, I always wish everybody had a reasonable house. Imagine all houses in Kenya were reasonable. All people in Kenya had food. Uh, you know, this is not the case. And if we would all be happier, and I think the fact that it is possible, if you look at the money that Kenya has, it is possible. But if you look at them high, the way it is used, then it becomes impossible. So I think looking at it that everybody deserves to have a good life is one approach. In my personal approach, it is also the will of God that everyone should have a good life. And God's empowerment makes it possible for you to achieve these things. So I see that Jesus was able to do a lot of good in his three years of service as, as a, in, that he walked the earth as, uh, in his ministry. And I think that that same Jesus, the spirit that moved Jesus, is still with us, and it can move us to achieve what seems impossible. So I really wish that the young people of this country could take that so that they have a better life, even for themselves, and they can go to bed in peace mm. and get old in peace. Okay. To those people who are in the trenches now, whether in Kenya or elsewhere, working to build a better world, working to make a difference, but they find themselves suffering in some way, what would you say to them? Well, it is very difficult to know what to say to them, except to say, hope, keep hope alive. Keep hope alive and pray that doors open, especially pray that leaders in our countries, especially in the African countries and everywhere in the world, plan for the people who are in their problems. I... I I don't think I could tell them that they can still 
because whom will they steal from except from their own people who are in their trenches with them? So I think it's, it, the responsibility is really for those who are in a well-placed position to reach out and give them hope. And we need to have leaders. We need, you know, the problem was that when I was growing up, when I was deciding on my professional life, we all said politics was a dirty game. And we all kept away from politics. I am coming to realize that we must encourage some of our straightforward young people to join politics. How shall we clean it up? Some young people, younger people, when I say young, I mean 40, 60, they should join politics. Because this idea that politics is a dirty cave, then it is just left for those who are crooked. But we must elect people who are straightforward. It is also our responsibility on whom we elect. So let the people who are in the trenches think about electing people who are straightforward. Not only the people who can give them sugar for today and then disappear for five years. Let us elect rulers that can get us out of the trenches. I go to Kibera and I, or Matare Wale and I, the slums of I have cried there. I have cried many times because those people should be living a better life. So we're drawing to the close of um, our time together. Um, any final thoughts on, on courage, conviction, connection, fearlessness um, to share with our listeners before you go? My final thought is just that let's believe in God and God's goodness for all human beings. And let's believe that through God's enablement, we can keep away our own lives from corruption and we can use public resources for the good of everybody. And even go beyond the public resources, use our own resources to help people out. Right now I'm sponsoring three girls at university. And one of them, the Padre, is a daughter of a Padre. The Padre just brought the girl and said, she finished from four. I don't know anything about high school, so, higher school, so. And he dropped out of my house. He's not related to me, and I said, oh my God, what shall I do? I had already retired. My pension is not that, and so on. But, you know, we can also reach out to each other. Let us, let us aim to have a good life for everybody so that we can be blessed and we can also have a good life for ourselves. I'll push back, um, you know, on, on your faith and, you know, the belief in God. Because there are people all over the world who would tell you that this God you speak of, um, God's house is one of the bastions of corruption. God's house is one of the bastions of sexual abuse. God's house is one of the bastions of the oppression of women. So when you're exhorting people to believe in God and God's goodness, um, there are those who see that um, people who claim to be godly people are some of the worst offenders of uh, worst violators of human dignity. Unfortunately, that is sometimes true. And I have a very difficult time knowing what to say because people who call on the name of God and misuse it are really in trouble in the long run because I don't think God allows it. 
And I don't know why people have a problem, why especially the Christian church would have a problem with the issue of women. Because, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, they say God made us in our image and he made man and female in his image. That is the only verse which says male and female to make sure that even women were made in the image of God. It helped me a lot when men have tried to threaten me to remember that I am made in the image of God. Me, a girl, as a young girl. So I, although I didn't argue with them, my approach in life has not been to have a lot of arguments, but to believe that God has said he has made me in his image, so that's okay. So let women believe that God made, him in the, made them in his image. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 of Genesis. It makes us so. If people in the church who believe in God were faithful to the word of God, then we would be in a different situation. In fact, uh, this is the problem. People play games with the word of God. People, someone was telling me the other day that when a, when, a, when, when, religious, when a group of religious leaders leave the office, they make sure that whatever money was there, they make sure that they distribute it among themselves before the next group comes in. So when the next group comes in, they have nothing. Now, that's not Christian. So I think that if you are a committed Christian, you have a happier life. Because you sleep knowing that God, you are doing what God has asked you to do. When you are just saying you are a Christian and stealing and mistreating other people, mistreating the women, mistreating the disadvantaged. But Jesus said... Love one another as I have loved you. And he said, love your neighbor like yourself. And everybody is your neighbor, as he told us. So how can we then go on stealing even within the church? It is very sad, but I hope that now that we see the disadvantages of that, the young people will say, enough is enough, and move on to become proper leaders of their people. All right then, Mama Miriam, uh, we've come to the end of this first episode of Fearless. I'd like to thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the privilege of this interview.